This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. You're listening to the Breakfasts podcast for the week of July 18 to July 22. This week we spoke uh, to Tori Russell of uh, Hands Up United from Ferguson, Missouri about the Black Lives Matter campaign. Very interesting it was too. And we talked about uh, Bon Jovi and awful wedding performances. It was very awful, that particular Bon Jovi wedding performance. (laughs) Uh, We also discussed the dangers of jellyfish. Yes, very dangerous. Horrifying, yeah. And also uh, the listing of the Borneo orangutans to now critically endangered with Marissa Parrott from Zoos Victoria. Tori Russell is the co-founder and director of Hands Up United. He's speaking tonight at the annual Caston Centre for Human Rights Law Conference, but he's joining us in the studio. Welcome to Triple R. (laughs) Thanks for having me. Uh, Last year... Police in the US killed 1,100 people. I think the latest stats is something like 60 people have been shot dead by American police in the last 30 days. Why are the American police killing so many people? Um, that's just the history of America. Uh, the history of America is violent, you know. Um, for the Native Americans, they land here with violence. Um, our Latino brothers and sisters in the Southwest, violence. Uh, and then they brought slaves and enslaved uh, African descendants. So it's just a history of a violence. So lynching, Jim Crow laws, uh, bombs, world wars, all of that uh, always been co-facilitated or facilitated by the U.S. And so um, we're just seeing it played out on an everyday basis. I, th- I think the world knows about it now. You're from the town of Ferguson in Missouri where Michael Brown was killed by... Um police in a very famous case i read um one statistic that that's a city of twenty one thousand people and police had warrants for sixteen thousand people which is extraordinary what explains that level of policing yeah and that's actually on the low end and so i grew up um in the inner city um and ferguson is a little bit outside of that so i literally say eight minutes so st louis is basically like uh made up of uh somewhere around 90 what we call 90 plus uh municipalities but we actually call them uh plantations and so it's like very small places with 100 people 10,000 people 20,000 people mayor judge lawyer all of that for these small places and so uh you know Ferguson is really a nice place um if you're white and but two-thirds of the population is black and so as long as you don't come in contact with the police you're okay and so on that day mike brown came in contact with the police like most black people do in st louis um and you know you know unfortunately he was killed Mm. so like in the recent couple of you know weeks even coming out of america there's been some crazy shit going down and from the other side of the world it's kind of unbelievable and hard to believe did you feel that it was coming to this boiling point in america is that what it feels like at the moment i think it's always been like that yeah um unfortunately uh, you know, we had famous cases, of course, like Mike Brown, Eric Garner outside selling loose cigarettes when he actually wasn't selling loose cigarettes that day. Uh, 12-year-old boy, Tamir Rice, killed in an open carry state. I don't even know if y'all have a, a understanding. Basically, open carry state means I can have a gun out in the open. 12-year-old boy with a toy gun was killed in between a park and a community center. Yeah. And so uh, what tends to happen is is that that's just an everyday occurrence. Uh, I think the you know the movement uh, has really uh you know put it on the mainstream be it uh in australia being in africa uh being in europe um what we're seeing is just black bodies being more visible um but unfortunately the visibility is coming through black death mm-hmm. 
Um, the police that we see um, in, in, in the footage of these protests are heavily militarised. They're using army equipment. I think both of um, the men who were um, accused of killing police were army veterans. How significant is America's military engagement around the world with what's happening in America today and the kind of society it's become? Yeah, I think it's, you know, in the military-industrial complex. Um, uh, as a country who either invests 50% of their uh, budget even either into the military, the actual military, or into uh, weapons and surveillance. That's just 50% of the budget. So they're not thinking about half the time. They're not thinking about feeding anybody, educating anybody, um, or even giving health care. They're literally thinking about bombs and jets and how to protect something. Um, and so uh, what you see on a local level um, is actually the construction of, uh, you know, George Bush and the continuation of uh, Barack Obama. And so they allowed these local municipalities with 1,000, 5,000 people uh, <laughs> to be basically uh, what you're seeing online is have robocops walking around and protest. Um, I, I could never believe that a small town like Ferguson with 20,000 people uh, would need such armor. If, if you just seen Baton Rouge last week, uh, those cops literally look like robocop. Yeah. <laughs> and they had big guns I've never seen before and I and I would ask you why would you need armor on your toes <laughs> yeah right <laughs> like what was that for yeah. you know like like but this is America and so what you tend to see is the top 20 uh, armies in the world, I believe four of those are the U.S. Army, uh, New, New York Police Department, L.A. Police Department, and Boston. And so four, three cities in the United States government has the four biggest armies out of 20. And so what does that mean? That All it means is uh, America's prepared for war. Uh, I, the question is for Barack Obama, whoever the president is, is, is it a war on the people or is it uh, the war on terror? Well, I guess that takes us to the current political situation in the US. We've got a situation where we might have Trump as the President of the United States or Hillary Clinton. Um, what do you want to see from the leader that does come in? Or are you concerned about what might happen? Uh, I would like uh, anybody but those two people. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, I, and I, I'm probably on the far left saying this, uh, no matter where I'm in the world, is uh, I see Donald Trump as someone who loves money. You know, I, I see him as what he is. He's a fascist. And so um, is, is he all he wants is the perfect merger of state and money. That's all he cares about. And so he's he's going after that. I don't think he's a warmongerer, but I know who he is. That's Hillary Clinton. And so is, is she destabilized Libya? Is she uh, destabilized Central America and destabilized Honduras? Um, we see uh, through her mentorship uh, through Harry Kissinger, uh, <laughs> which is, you know, the warmonger of, all, of our lifetime, is that all they care about is war. Um, and I'm pretty sure they're not concerned with poor working class black or brown people, or just poor working class people at all. Mm. You talked before about the military-industrial complex. There's also been a lot of talk recently about the prison-industrial complex um, with huge numbers of uh, particularly African-American people, not only incarcerated, but then when they come out of prison, denied the vote, denied education because of their prison record. How central is that huge carceral state to racism in the US today? I, I would really say it's uh, it's astounding. And so if you're poor, period, and I, I want, you know, we start going over statistics. I'm, I'm a nerd like that. I like that. <laughs> um, you know, in actuality, more white people are killed in the United States of America by the police than black people. 
uh, white people uh, just don't notice that. And so as you look at it, if they're not killing you um, with police guns, um, they're going to put you in what they call the school-to-prison pipeline. And so unfortunately in the country, uh, through Bill Clinton, who before Barack Obama was the first black president, (laughs) uh, Mm -hmm. has uh, put together privatized prisons. And so leading youth into prisons, not only uh, adult prisons, but now uh, juvenile prisons. So we've seen judges actually going to jail because they are fulfilling quotas from private institutions and private corporations um, and actually getting paid. And so in Philadelphia or in Pittsburgh, uh, rather, uh, it was a judge who just went to jail uh, for fulfilling these uh, quotas. And so what you're seeing is time and time again is black and brown and white youth uh, at the sixth grade level, if they cannot read and they're not proficient in math and science, then literally the state or a private entity builds a jail or a prison in preparation of them. So they have a model to, to make sure that they have a profit. And so what we're seeing is exactly what you're saying is uh, poor working class people can't find a job while they're out. They go to jail. They work for companies like, you know, I'm going to drop it, like uh, American Airlines. Um, they work for Victoria's Secret. And so uh, as a, a poor working class woman who can't find a job goes to, uh, goes to prison, makes Victoria uh, Secret clothing, get out and cannot get a job at Victoria's Secret, what we're seeing is hypocrisy. Um, from American capitalism, and uh, we have to do something about it. Tell us about that, your organization, Hands Up United. Where did it come from, and what does it do? Um, so, Hands Up United actually came out of the chant, um, out of the people in the streets. Um, one, of, one of our elders, brother Shahid, uh, was with the family, and out of fear that uh, they would be next, they put their hands up. And so, you know, it started off with "Hands up, don't shoot me," and then it came "Hands up, don't shoot." And so, out of that chant, that mantra, uh, me and a brother named Tef Poe, a local uh, uh, recording artist, uh, created an organization. Because, in all honesty, the NAACP and these other traditional organizations who were kind of taking credit or having these media talking points um, weren't actually in the street uh, getting tear gassed, getting shot with rubber bullets. Um, Some of my friends actually got shot with real bullets. Um, You know, people's eyes got shot out uh, by beanbags and rubber bullets. And so uh, we created an organization uh, and at first around protests and then we kind of got a little community oriented, started doing programs, free breakfast programs, getting tech, um, something different. We want to be multifaceted. We want to start with police brutality, uh, but let's get to some some long-term systemic issues. Uh, this It's kind of spilled out from America to other countries. On the weekend, there was a Black Lives Matter uh, protest in Australia. I believe you went along in Melbourne, yes. didn't you? Yeah. Um, how do you feel about this now kind of spreading beyond America to other countries? I think it's always been here. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, the white settlers went everywhere. And so if you see Aborigine people, um, to me, they're just like black Indians. They're black Native Americans, essentially an American lexicon. And so, uh, you know, just making sure that their voices are heard. Um, understanding their stories um, and making sure that, uh, you know, I just I, I seen a tweet a couple of days from uh, NBA player uh, Andrew Bogut basically asking uh, why why Australians or why people in Melbourne um, are protesting. Uh, you know, I, I think that shows that, um, you know, for whatever reason, there's always going to be a large segment of the population who just don't understand their own uh, national history. And so I would challenge him not only to a basketball game, because I'm pretty sure he's going to not be in the league pretty soon because he's a bomb. But, 
uh, I would also <laughs> challenge him to a history contest. Uh, actually, understanding, have you ever been to these remote places where Aboriginal people live? Have you ever been to uh, some of these refugee camps and some of these islands, these dark places um, that are uh, facilitated by the Australian government? So, uh, you know, it's just, it's just idiotic. Um, but what we're seeing is that all black lives matter, no matter where the country, uh, no matter where we are in the map. Hmm. Um, in the Australian discussion about violence in the US, it, often the focus is very much on gun control as the central issue. I know Hands Up United describes itself as coming, um, filling the, the void that remains from the historical archives of the Black Power movement. Within the Black Power movement, groups like the Black Panther Party were very much into armed self-defence and opposed gun legislation. What's your take on on gun control in the US? Um, you know, I'm a um, quote of Malcolm. Um, paraphrase and say, you know, um, a, a reaction to a radical action um, is always going to be looked at by the oppressor as radical. And, and so if you come at me with a gun, for how long am I supposed to be nonviolent and, and peaceful? And so I think we have to really truly have an honest conversation. I think Dr. King kind of phrased it uh uh, perfectly and say, how could I say I'm nonviolent here in America, but uh, uh, support the country who's being violent everywhere else in the world? And so I think on a very basic level, I think people have the right to live and survive and thrive inside this society. Uh, what we're seeing, uh, no matter where you at, is either with a gun in the United States or without a gun in police custody, like in the UK, uh, like in Australia, is that people have to be able to defend themselves. I, I believe there's nothing wrong with that. Um, everywhere else, <laughs> everywhere else in history, uh, we have, uh, you know, Patrick Henry, uh, you know, you have all these great people who took up arms and took up defense of their community. I honestly think it's time for people to organize whatever uh, way or uh, means to freedom there is. All right. Just before we let you go, what is next for the Black Lives Matter movement? I think, um, you know, more organizing, um, more strategic uh, planning, uh, definitely getting more global. I, w I would like to say that, you know, uh, over traveling last year, uh, being in about six or seven countries, actually seeing the same things over and over again. So actually I'll be uh, meeting with some organizers uh, after the conference to make sure that uh, we have some training, some workshops and some understanding, um, but also how to connect them to the global movement that is Black Lives Matter, uh, that they is starting Ferguson. Um, and you're going to see something real, you know, it's going to be real nice. It's going to be real help, and we're probably going to have some cool-ass t-shirts on. <laughs> <laughs> We've been talking to Tori Russell. He's the co-founder and director of Hands Up United from Ferguson, Missouri. He's speaking tonight at the annual Caston Centre for Human Rights Law Conference. Thanks so much for coming in. For sure. Thanks for having me. This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Have you guys heard of the Orokanji, um jellyfish? No, I have not. I have, have not, you? no. This surprises... I haven't heard of it either until I did some research. Uh, but it surprises me because it's so... It, it's found up north. It's a real jellyfish, isn't it? It's a real jellyfish. Not yeah, from Finding yeah. Nemo, too. No, 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 no. It's a, it's a real thing. And it's tiny. Like, it's like a one centimetre, like one of those mm. tiny, tiny, tiny oh. jellyfish. That's horrifying. Yeah. Because how, how do you feel about <laughs> jellyfish? Sarah Smith, nature lover. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know it. Because uh, you're not a fan of oc octopi. I, no, I don't like octopi. But how does it pie? What is it? Octopi. <laughs> Sorry. Let's just go with octopi then. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I also don't like jellyfish. 
Well, this one you're really not going to like because um, it's – they say if you get stung by this jellyfish, you know, on that pain rating like between, you know, 1 to 10, this comes in at a 12. Oh, no. Nasty little jellyfish. Really? Yeah, like yeah. worse than a blue bottle? Well, blue bottle kills you, doesn't it? Yeah. Oh, no, I don't think blue I, ring octopus. Yeah, you I think of blue ring octopus. Oh. I used to swim with the blue bottles in Sydney uh. occasionally. Oh, really? Yeah, it's horrifying when you see them bobbing next to you. You know how hard it is to get away from something <laughs> when you're in <laughs> You're in water. What? <laughs> what how? Do, um, what? Do you have a wetsuit on? Or? No, like I said, they'd come into Sydney really often, and sometimes at Coogee Beach, they'd close the beach because they'd just be a friggin' a swarm. swarm of them would come in. Yeah, but I distinctly remember swimming at Bondi and, and Coogee. Sometimes you'd be swimming, and they'd just be there next to you. Never got stung, mate. Wow! But tell us and what, more what about are these this, ones do. These mini ones. Uh, so. Symptoms. Here we go. Because the jellyfish is very small and the venom is only injected through the tips. Uh, rather than, oh God! Just get to the good stuff. Um, so when you get to, you get Orokanji syndrome, uh, which in, includes an array of systematic sy- symptoms, including severe headache, backache, muscle pains, chest and abdominal pain, nausea and vomiting, sweating, anxiety, hypertension. This is a hangover. <laughs> 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 yeah, ta- what is this tachycardia and pulmonary edema? So, uh, so they, God. but if they're so small, how would you yeah. know you've been bitten? Well, you have well, all you these don't. things to you, I it's, suppose. These symptoms start, start. So, and one unusual symptom associated with the syndrome is a feeling of impending doom. Patients have, have been reported as being so certain they are going to die, they beg their doctors to kill them to get it over with. P- yeah, answer this phone call because if this is someone that knows about it, and I want to know more. But if it's not, it's just going <laughs> to be weird. I've got anyway. a feeling of impending oh doom as we take this phone call. <laughs> Hello, you're on Triple R. G'day. It's actually called the Irukandji jellyfish. Oh, yes. thank you. Thank you for ringing up, Irukandji. And is it as bad as it sounds? Well, when they, uh, in North Queensland during the wet season, they generally put up the, swim, the nets where you can swim in, so they say, on the beaches, because they supposedly keep out the Irukandji, but they can still wash over with the waves. What they used to do was leave uh, bottles or plastic bottles of vinegar on the beach so that if ever you got stung, you'd pour the vinegar on you, and they'd say that that helped alleviate a lot of the pain. But they're... they're Throughout there, they've been there for thousands and thousands of years, and they're just a part of the natural environment. They're, uh, people up there know about them. You can swim around there, but they suggest that when you swim, you put basically cover yourself in a wetsuit. Have you ever been stung by them? Never been stung by them, but in the wet season up there, I never swam in the waters there because in the wet season, the waters are murky, and, and you know that they're there, so why take the risk? So yeah, you're a smart man. Swim. Well, you don't swim there. The locals don't swim there. So in the wet season, if you need to go for a swim, you find a freshwater swimming hole or a swimming pool and you just don't go in the water. Oh, mate, you are, I'm so happy I answered your phone call. Thank you. You've given no me faith in the How do we say phone. it again? Big pardon? How do you say it again? Irukandji. Irukandji. Awesome. Yep. Have a good day. Same here. Bye. Thanks. I think it's probably safer just never to go in the water at all. Yeah, that might be the <laughs> evidence. Especially in, in northern Queensland, like, <clears throat> there's crocs, there's jellyfish, there's, yeah, stick to the pool. Yeah, it's Pauline Hanson.
Now, some of you might have seen this on Facebook, but there was a wedding recently um, in in the States. Uh, they had a wedding band, as a lot of weddings do. Yeah. And you just see your classic wedding band, classic. right? You mean, like, Mom- not very good? They're just oh, cheesy big hits. Yeah. yeah, bit of a brass section that doesn't make sense. Yeah, like here's here's an example of I might play a little bit of it now. Sure, yeah. Um, bit of this. Like that. Oh yeah. <laughs> it's a shame people can't see Sarah's dancing. Yeah. This is all fine, right? Got it. It's not really that fine. Well, that's true. There's a few things wrong with it, but anyway. There are, yes. But the best thing about it is John Bon Jovi was at this wedding. Oh. That's his song. So when she starts singing it, she makes a bit of eye contact with yeah. her old John Bon Jovi. Come on. Come on. Get oh. up and have a sing. That is the worst <laughs> idea ever. Like if you're that, and you can tell that you know there's people in in there, and he's kind of very reluctant. You know, he's sitting there just going. He's got this really strained grin on his face, and then he's because people are filming him, and he's like, "Yeah, oh. that's my song." <laughs> yeah. And then he, they ask him to come up, and he kind of you can just see that he doesn't want to get up. He's just and having he's, a nice time at yeah, the wedding. Just yeah, let me sit he, here at the wedding. Kind of, he you know tries to go. Oh yeah, that's fine. No, no, you sing, you sing for a bit. But then it's like, oh. I cannot get out of this and I, my, I think one of my favorite parts is like sitting behind him is like uncle barry this big guy just kind of clapping out of time like well how great is this and then so he gets up and um and sings and it's like not even in the right key and stuff and and as soon as it, this wedding singer when when he does get up he takes the mic off her goes get out of it and gets up on stage and kind of you know makes everyone happy but then she's off to the side going get me the other mic give me the other oh, mic she wants to sing a I want to do it with John Bon Jovi yeah and it's just like why would you do that um, and does he do all the Bon Jovi moves while he's doing it or? no no he just stands there and, and sings and kind of you gets know, through it yeah <laughs> you can just see on his face he's like get me out of here this will yeah. soon be yeah. over <laughs> it's like it's such a bad idea <laughs> Either, um, like, and what? Anyway, have you ever been? Because you were saying, yeah. say, "Come on, say something funny." Yeah, get up at this wedding and do a, fi- a bit. Not necessarily at a wedding. Um, I've I've been asked to MC weddings. Um, yeah. Look, I got asked to I got asked to MC my brother's wedding, and um, and I stole a joke. Or oh, I asked a friend if I could use his joke. Um, and in the, the because I was, you know, my brother said, you know, you're funny and stuff, and and also my, you know, sister-in-law at the time was like, yeah, you're really funny. We really love to have you as the MC. And then, um, so in during the speeches, I was like, oh, I remember when, when Marty first first met her, and and um, he turned to me and he said, oh, so he turned to me and said, I'm gonna see that girl over there. I'm gonna I'm gonna marry her one day. And then um, turned out uh, didn't didn't marry her. So here's to Plan B, um, <laughs> which is you know very funny joke. <laughs> and my brother was aware it was a joke, and you know everyone was aware. Most people at that wedding, <laughs> most people <laughs> were aware that that was a joke. But apparently the mother of the bride was like, "What? What was all that about?" It's like, no, oh. didn't go down too well. well. You guess you'd have to be a bit careful. I've been at weddings where you know the best man gets up. 
Yeah. It does. Impromptu does speeches. Oh, yeah. man. Yeah. Don't you, talk about your footy trip at a wedding, <laughs> yeah, mate. That's yeah. right. And you can just see that maybe he's had a few drinks and it's starting to go a bit far. You know, yeah. it moves from amusing stories to just flat-out abuse. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've heard about I was, those I was at a 21st. I was at a 21st, which was, I can't actually retell the story because it's too crude to tell on air. Mm. Uh, but there was, it was kind of a group of guys that they seemed to want to outdo how gross the worst stories they could tell about each other at each 21st during the year, you know, throughout the year. And this guy got up and uh, he was, you know, kind of like roasting his mate, saying funny things. And there was... Um, whole lot of people in the room who uh, grandparents and sisters and stuff and mm. he ends up going yeah and here's to that time you you know oh. you did something really rude with my sister in the back of the you <gasps> get stuffed mate and like everyone oh, and he, yeah, he just oh. turned and he just turned, and then he just walked away and we're all like <laughs> I mean, and it was like grandparents were looking at each other. The girl in question was there. It was just like something. Oh, it was so bad. It was just like the one clap in the background. No one kind of knew what to do. <laughs> so it makes it, makes it worse. Yeah. I've been to like, you know, parties and stuff. Just in, I remember once I was just in a, in a backyard party. It was just a house party kind of thing. A few people around and a friend was there. It was like, Jordan does comedy. Get up and do some comedy now. I'm like, no, no, there's, it's, there's no stage or anything. Like, it's not. She's like, I'll make you a stage and just put I'll on make a, you a stage. <laughs> and she got a chair and put it in, you know, in, in the middle of the backyard. Oh, get, up on, on the chair, get up on the chair. And she chair. was so full. And I was like, I, I can't get out of this. I'm going to have oh, to. Yes. And then I just. <laughs> <get> <laughs> on the chair oh, God. And tell jokes. But as, like, it had been raining. <laughs> so the chair just starts slowly sinking into the ground. Along with all my jokes. Quite a Bon Jovi kind of moment. joined by Marissa Parrott from Zoos Victoria. How are you going, Marissa? I'm well, thank you. Thanks for having me. It's a great pleasure. Last fortnight we got the news that the Bornean orangutan has been listed as critically endangered. What does that mean? It doesn't sound good. It's definitely not good. It's a really sad case that one of our closest cousins has been upgraded from endangered to critically endangered, just a step closer to being extinct in our lifetime. What, so how many? how many is that? They don't know exactly. We know with the Sumatran orangutan, uh, there are probably fewer than 6,000 left. There are more of the Bornean orangutans. They think anywhere between about 45,000 and 60,000. And that sounds like a lot, but they reproduce so slowly and they're dying out so quickly that they could be gone extremely quickly. And it's a very scary time for them. Like, are we talking within our lifetime? That's right, oh within our lifetime. I find this really surprising, though, because I feel like I it's such a public campaign to keep orangutans alive and I see the palm oil campaigns everywhere and posters and my friends adopt orangutans and how has this happened despite all of this kind of public awareness? It's a really good question. 
it's such a charismatic, beautiful creature. They're so like us. They're so intelligent. And people love orangutans. And the scary thought is that we could lose them. And if we lose orangutans, we could lose anything. There Mm. are a number of threats over in Borneo that people know about, but trying to get the messages out there, particularly to big business about how they can make a difference, has been really difficult. Mm. You, You mentioned the Sumatran orangutans. We're talking about the Borneo Bornean, Bornean, the orangutan from Borneo. How many different types of orangutans are there, and how different are the different sorts? There are just the two types, so they're on obviously different islands, and there are some differences in them, slightly different shape, face. Um, the Bornean orangutans are a little bit darker, but they can interbreed, so they are very closely related animals. Okay. You lived in the Borneo jungle in 2006, I believe, working with orangutan rescue and rehabilitation. What did that involve? Uh, It was just absolutely amazing. I just handed in my PhD and decided I want to get away from computers and away from everything and and move to the jungle. And it's a magnificent place. The the noises of the birds and the insects every day are deafening and just so many animals. I worked with uh, Sepulokarantan Rehab Centre as well as a zoo and also the Malaysian government. Um, So a lot of it was voluntary work. I just went over wanting to help out. And it involved everything from going out onto palm oil plantations to conduct rescues with the rangers to hand racing orphan baby orangutans and releasing them back into the wild it was amazing can you (laughs) remember your your first encounter with with an orangutan and and what was that like my first encounter was with some of the youngsters and we just had a new little baby boy come in. He was about two and a half years old and his name was Reuben. And so he was in the nursery in quarantine. He'd just been taken from a village where they'd been illegally housing him. Luckily, he was quite healthy compared with a lot of the babies that were coming in. And he was obviously very frightened. And I remember just picking him up and giving him a cuddle and he just cuddled oh. right in and my heart melted. <laughs> Actually hurting my heart. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> we, we've oh, mentioned wow. um, palm oil. Some people will know um, about the role of palm oil in the problems facing orangutans, but can you explain what exactly is happening to them? There are a number of threats for the orangutans and the two key ones are hunting for food. So people do eat orangutans or, as I was just talking about, they do kill mothers and take the babies for the illegal pet trade. Uh, And they also kill them in retribution for raiding crops uh, because there just isn't the forest left for them to eat anymore. And the second one, and that's the one that we can actually all get involved in, is habitat destruction. So in Borneo, it's been estimated that since agriculture really took off there in about 1973 when they brought in machinery, that they've lost about 40% of the habitat. And it's been estimated that by 2025, they're going to lose another 37% of their habitat. So the majority of their habitat, over 80%, will be completely gone. Um, And of the habitat remaining, a lot of that has been logged. So about 55% of the remaining habitat has been... um, damaged and thus can't hold as many orangutans and the key thing that they're actually destroying the forest for at the moment is palm oil and palm oil is found in so many of our different uh, products from toothpaste to to so many different types of food Um, but it doesn't have to be labeled as palm oil it can be labeled as vegetable oil in fact there are 200 different labels that it comes under and people don't realize that when they're buying products they may have palm oil in them and it may be contributing to over a thousand orangutan deaths every year Mm. when you were there 
What did the locals think, the people that you talked to, what did they think about the orangutans and their fate? I mean, were they, were local people sort of keen on development because that would bring them out of poverty or were they worried about the losses of the orangutans? I think it depends where you go. In the area where I was working, obviously there was a large amount of tourist trade, people coming to see orangutans and proboscis monkeys and the Kinabatangan region, which is a World Heritage listed biodiversity site. So the people there wanted the orangutans. In other areas... People do want development, um, but what I was told often happened, particularly in the regions near me, was that uh, they would be promised that there'd be a lot of employment opportunities, they'd cut down the forest, have one lot of palm oil, and then they'd move on. So there wasn't a long-term sustainable um, solution for the local communities, and that was causing a lot of stress. So there are, are really two different types of palm oil. One of them is unsustainable. It means they're cutting down virgin rainforests, they're planting, and they're moving on and they're leaving behind the communities and degraded areas. The other type is sustainable palm oil and that means that you can keep using that land over and over again and you're not denuding the late, the native forest. Um, and palm oil actually isn't evil. A lot of people hear palm oil, they think it's bad. Per hectare, you can get more oil from a palm oil plantation than you can from any other type of oil. So if you can reuse that land and if it can be done sustainably, it's actually a really good product. You just need to make sure that you're using sustainable palm oil, not the type that's destroying forests. So what's the number one thing then you're hoping or people, I suppose, who are trying to support orangutans are going to try and achieve to reverse what's happened? I think the first thing we need to do is actually have the choice to choose food with sustainable palm oil, yeah. to actually know what's in our products. At the moment, the United States of America, the European Union, Canada, they all have mandatory palm oil labelling, but Australia and New Zealand are lagging behind. We don't have mandatory palm oil labelling. It seems and like such a simple thing. It does, doesn't it? Just like, yeah. yeah, just say what it is. We label everything else. Yeah. You know? That's right. Give people the choice of what they want. Um, at the moment, we're running a petition through Zoos Victoria, so you can actually go on and sign. We have, um, to date, 53,000 signatures or more, which is great. And in November, it's going to be voted on by the Ministers for, for Health, uh, the Ministers for Food Standards and the Food Standard Governing Body for Australia and New Zealand. And we'd love to have everyone sign that petition and let people know, yes, they want the choice, they want this labelled in Australia. And then once it's labelled, we can start talking to people about having it sustainable and making sure we're not damaging those forest habitats for orangutans. Mm. These stories can leave people feeling quite hopeless. Are there examples of animals coming back from being critically endangered to being pulled back from the brink? There are actually. A lot of those involve things like hunting. So the oryx over um, in the Arab regions, um, the Arabian oryx was actually listed as extinct in the wild. They were only in a captive breeding program. They've now been reintroduced back to the wild. Similar things with Mongolian horses. Um, the Californian condor is another really good example, the black-footed ferret. There are these examples where animals were listed either as critically endangered or extinct in the wild, and they have now started to increase their numbers so people can make a difference. It's all about mitigating those threats, protecting those animals and giving them the chance to live. Talking about animals that are in trouble, what's the latest update on the little baby elephant that we've been talking about? Oh, she's such a little trooper. She's an absolute sweetheart. She is still in a critical stage, so she's... Um, 
she has a number of infections. Unfortunately, being such a small baby, um, her immune system isn't great. And so she's been cared for round the clock, 24-7 by keepers and the veterinarians. They're doing an absolutely amazing job. They're all exhausted um, keeping this little girl going. She's not eating as well as they had hoped, so she has a mix of her mum Nemoy's milk plus um, an artificial milk to get her enough. But because she's not eating as much as they'd like, she has to be on a drip. That does mean she's getting broad-scale antibiotics as well. Um, she's had those ever since she was born, just as a preemptive step to ensure her, her health and her safety, but they just recently found that one of those, um, or, or she does have an infection that's not covered by that broad spectrum antibiotic. So they've got her on a new type of antibiotics, and she has, has actually stepped up a little bit, which is great. She was eating well the other night, um, which is a really good step in the right direction, but she is still critical. So please keep thinking of us and, and keep supporting our keepers and our vets. Uh, they've received so many great comments, and it really does mean a lot to them. We're doing everything we can for our baby. Oh. Right, and if you want to support the uh, palm oil campaign, go to the Zoos Victoria website and you can sign it there. We've been talking to Marissa Parrott from Zoos Victoria. Thanks very much for coming in. Thank you. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.